Hey there, and welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna and Dana, and this is the show where we talk with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is JP Verlin, who is a co-founder of Pipeline Serum. And Pipeline Serum is the number one sales serum, and since last year, also a member of SaaS Group family. They bootstrapped almost all the way uh, into being the most adopted CRM for small and mid-sized businesses, empowering sales teams to build game-changing relationships with their customers. And of course, we're here to discuss all that and everything that led to an eventual acquisition. Welcome, JP. It's great to see you here. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I love your background. Um, I... <laughs> I'm kind of jealous a little bit, but yeah, let's, let's talk about you. I mean, this, this is the show about you and the way you see the way you built pipeline. So could you tell us a bit about your background first? Sure. So started off out of college doing satellite space stuff. Um, that lasted about a year, traveled the world for, saved up $12,000, traveled the world for a little bit, uh, lived out of a backpack and a tent. Worked on a boat, ended up in Seattle after going through the Panama Canal, found that was right at the e-commerce or the dot-com bubble, right, uh, around, the, around the 2000 mark, and just fell in love with technology and e-commerce. And worked in a few e-commerce shops, wound out in Pennsylvania at an e-commerce shop called GSI Commerce at the time. Ran into a friend, or now a friend, and uh, somebody who I think you said you're interviewing tomorrow, Nick Bertolino. Uh, yeah. And that turned out to be my co-founder of a couple companies. I think all in, we probably started about three ventures together and ultimately resulted in why we're here today, which is Pipeline Deals, now Pipeline CRM. And uh, always been a fan of technology, um, like building teams, like working with amazing people, and always an entrepreneur at heart and tried a lot of different things over the years, but pipelines seem to stick. Right. Well, I started analyzing your, your journey, uh, at least over the, the last 16 years with pipeline. And I thought, oh my God, so much has changed. I mean, 16 years ago, I think I got my first computer and it was, it was bizarre. <laughs> it was such yeah, a horrible I... experience. <laughs> right. I still remember that, like, when you were going on the internet, uh, then it meant that nobody can call you because the phone wouldn't work. And then the beeping, yes. <laughs> it was just constant, like, how you dealt with it? How did you build a company? Yeah, I think technology evolved and technology really changed thanks to an evolution in uh, the way the browser works with the the user and the local software and the cloud, right? Those were all just really amorphous concepts with sort of really elite technical people who like Larry Ellison had talked about the cloud for a long time and dumb terminals and, you know, society and technology was sort of sorting through these concepts. But, you know, in the first generation of the internet, you, you really had to send and receive data, right? There wasn't this interactive browser like native software environment that we all take for granted today, right? Like to send any data locally to a server far away, you would have to push a submit button or an enter button uh, or a send button. And, you know, technology in the mid 2000s, we latched on to Ruby on Rails. That was one of the first technologies that um, DHH invented at 37 Signals, actually pre 37 Signals. And that really made that browser experience for the user so rich and interactive and behave like native software. And for people who've come online, right, in um, a recreational or professional capacity over, gosh, the last 15 years, sort of just take that experience for granted, right? Like, this is how the internet works. This is how SaaS software works, right? It's a very robust, uh, highly functional, highly immersive experience and that wasn't the case early on but when we saw where the browser was going where business software was going nick and i looked internally we had a 
prior business called Downtown E-Commerce Partners before Pipeline. And we looked at our biggest problems internally. And we made that transition that I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs want to make from a service business to a product business, um, product being software. And we were able to do that uh, early days. It took us two or three years to transition out of an online marketing agency to a full product business where sort of the, the child overtook the parent, right? Pipeline CRM overtook downtown e-commerce. And that was uh, quite the juggling act early days. And so that's how we started. What did it mean for you personally? Like, how did you have to change your mindset, you know, going mm. from a service to a product? Yeah, that is a transition. And a lot of entrepreneurs ask me the same question because they realize service businesses are hard. Anyone who builds a service business, my hat's off to you because you're only as good as your last contract. Your ability to raise capital oftentimes is limited. Um, and what I've found was you have to be patient. Um, you have to be a little lucky in choosing the right product at the right time, maybe a lot lucky. Um, but for us, we went back to business basics and said, you know, what is the biggest problem we have as a business? And that was sales, right? And CRM. And at the time there was no competitors, right? There was no um, pipe drive. There was no copper. There was no Insightly. Like these guys are all to us and to Nick and I sort of Johnny come lately's, right? They've all raised hundreds of millions of dollars more than Pipeline ever raised but they were, they were copycats and some of them got bigger and we all had different objectives as entrepreneurs, but our mindset was solve our own problem first, solve it passionately, solve it as a human. And that's what really drove us as entrepreneurs is solving a problem. And Hey, maybe there's thousands of other companies who have the same problem that we have, which is managing, tracking, organizing your sales process. And it, it turns out there, there were, thousands of companies with that same problem who didn't want to pay for Salesforce, right? You got to rewind the business story here too. 2006, Salesforce was the only game. People told us CRM's a dead end. You guys should not do this because Salesforce owns the market. And boy, were they wrong. Yeah. So that's, that's something I wanted to ask you. Maybe something tipped you off on like we, that you should go there or, um, how did you decide to compete? It was a giant, it's a giant company. And right. uh, like you said, there, there were only copycats after you. So somebody had to tip their toe into the water and like, see if there is still market for, for this unsexy yeah. business. But it turns out, uh, and this is uh, just across all the episodes of this podcast, unsexy business is something mm -hmm. very stable and super profitable, but not a lot of people want to go there just because it's not your uh, perception of a cool founder uh, persona that, that does, you know, CRM or, or accounting right. tool or something like that. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the unsexy business and a business based on fundamentals, right? Um, we never raised venture capital. Uh, we never, you know, it was all uh, bootstrap for the first eight years. And then, um, a small, small round, um, about nine years in, which is a story into itself. And then that ended up paying them all back before we found SAS group, but business fundamentals, getting back to an industry that we felt was underserved in, you had this on an earlier podcast, the pressure on SAS companies to go upstream, increase ACV increase LTV. And if I'm talking in alphabet soup, um, I can explain those terms, but really people want to move their unit, unit economics upstream. Right. And a lot of people talk about this is, you know, what's the effort to go close a hundred dollar a month deal. And what's the relative effort to go close a thousand dollar a month recurring revenue deal. Right. Arguably they're the same, but one of your one of your earlier podcasts was like he was very focused on the lower end of the market and listening to that podcast um, i was like that was our strategy right he however he found it he found our playbook and that was to stay underneath the uh, big guys like salesforce un stay focused where they couldn't compete right which is in an industry where we could 
compete on two hundred and fifty dollars uh, monthly SaaS revenue, right? Two hundred fifty dollars a month. Salesforce can't do that. They want to go get the sixteen thousand seat deal, right? Um, and finding those seams of opportunity. And when you find those seams as an entrepreneur, you want to mine the heck out of them, right? You follow that. It's like, I think of it like mining for gold in the old days, sort of in the mountains of Colorado or something where you find a silver streak or a gold streak and you're sort of in this corner of the mine and you're like, oh, I got to get all I can out of here while the getting's good. Um, and that's the same in business as you find your product market fit, you find your voice, you find your ideal customer profile. And once you're there, it's, it's, that's when you, the work really starts. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for listening uh, to the other podcast. I know which one you're talking about. It was uh, from Outset Up and uh, uh, mm -hmm. sure. I mean, that, that's a gold mine, right? Uh, if you're able to just stay there like so firmly, but then uh, there was another podcast. Uh, it's, it's not live yet, but we were talking about the fact that they were so focused on this one uh, market that they didn't see or didn't really want to see that it was very limited. And mm -hmm. the market was trying to pull them away from it and like offer mm -hmm. to offer other deals. And when it, they eventually did it, it was actually very good for them. So mm -hmm. how do you get? make sure that you gravitate towards the best outcome for the company? Oh, I, if I had that answer, Anna, um, <laughs> it would be a, a, a whole nother story, but I think staying true to your roots, right? Knowing your core value as a company, knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at. For us, we wanted to not raise capital uh we wanted to bootstrap or we always thought we could build more value into the business over time instead of to me it's value versus valuation and that's a very important distinction and we focused on building value into the business and didn't think about our valuation where i think that's a lot of tech entrepreneurs forget that a business is built on fun financial fundamentals, right? What's your gross margins? What's your cost of goods sold? What's your operating expense? What's your net margins? What's your profit, right? And look, there, there's a whole nother path here to take VC, do the valuation game. Uh, it is a game. Um, fight with those people, lose board control. Um, and that's a, another plausible route. And a lot of people have been very successful on that route. And I think that leads to an ethos in the entrepreneur, especially the tech landscape of a binary outcome, right? They want to tend to one or nothing. And they build VCs, that's who that they I'm referring to, build their portfolios and their investment thesis on 10 to ones or nothing. And they know if they invest in 70, they need five to work at a certain multiple in order to pay back the fund right and we didn't nick and i never believed in a, in binary outcomes we believed between failure right shutting down the business because we don't have any more money or customers or revenue or profit and a wildly successful exit or ipo or whatever that brass ring is for you as a business owner there was a whole spectrum of different outcomes that could work for us right and that's what ended up happening, right? We weren't a zero or a one. We were a 0.7 uh, outcome, right? And I think that binary mindset is um, detrimental ultimately to the entrepreneur. Um, and I think some investors prey off of that. And I think that's why the failure rate in startup land is so high, especially in tech, because there'll always be another one, right? Just as a VC, you're just kind of swiping through companies and when one hits, it hits. And if not, there'll be another one swipe. And I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I'm, I don't, I think if you're really pro entrepreneur, you're okay with a myriad of different outcomes for that entrepreneur. And that's, that's how we built the business. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I, I love it. And, uh, I, I think it's very, very meticulous. Like, like you always knew, uh, what metrics would matter for you and what is just the noise around. And uh, I think we, we talked before when uh, when we had our first call, um, 
and you said that every founder out there uh, builds with an exit in mind. I was very intrigued because I started to analyze it and I thought, oh my God, like I would never, when I imagined myself building a business, I would just think about growing it for 10, 20, 30 years and then just becoming wise old all just sitting there on the board of directors, you know, just still ruling this whole thing. But I never thought that, you know, I would eventually sold a business and maybe it's just because i'm not i'm not i wasn't uh very mature in this whole thing i didn't know that it was no, possible yeah. or or something but um what was your goal when you started um when you started building pipeline and what happened to um to the marketing company sure marketing company still running today it's run by um a great guy actually we just i just met with him he's running it now out of Portugal, um, and he's built it in, and him and his partner, um, his business partner, built it into this amazing thing doing e-commerce marketing, still staying true to his roots. We had met um, Patrick Teague, the owner there, um, many moons ago, actually at GSI Commerce in that that lifetime. Both Nick and I knew him in that environment, and from there, um, he's taken that off, and that was it's been great journey. I love helping entrepreneurs. I'm very passionate about that. Um, but for pipeline, my, if you talk to entrepreneurs in my experience, you find there's one driving force that, that kind of ties them all together. And ultimately that comes down to one word and that word is freedom. Entrepreneurs want freedom to do what they want, when they want, how they want to do it. And it's a lot of times it's a convoluted, twisted path to get to that freedom. And I think there's a misconception is with entrepreneurs is like, oh, you have no boss. You could do what you want. No, we all have a boss. The boss is the customer and the boss is our team. You actually have multiple. And if you're the CEO, your boss is the board, right? Like the stake, the shareholder. So you have multiple. And I also think there's an emerging discussion um, as I think about the businesses in the future, I, I believe there's a, a four stakeholder and that's the, uh, the earth, right? Like the planet and being a good, a good human and steward of the planet. But that wasn't in our calculus at pipeline, right? Like I, I, I when I do this again, it's going to be more um, planet focused. Uh, but in that entrepreneurial pursuit for freedom, um, you have to, find your way and how do you build freedom for yourself as an entrepreneur and that takes a long time because there was no freedom in the first five years of building that business right i started that business at precisely the wrong time if you look at it from uh, a smart right personally smart i had two kids we started in 06 so i had two kids under three years old and a wife who we had decided christine who's amazing said we're gonna have to raise, we want to raise our own kids. We're only going to have one income, right? And we made a lot of sacrifices to do that and started the business um, in a manner that still enabled, you know, her to stay at home and raise the kids and me to build the business um, and still be present um, with the family. And those first few years were hard and you make a lot of sacrifices, but ultimately you keep driving yourself and the business forward in a positive way. And I didn't do it right. Like I made a lot of mistakes as, as CEO of pipeline and there's a lot of things I learned. Um, but as you build the business, you're constantly improving the way you hire, the way you deliver the service to the customers, the way you think about your unit economics, um, the way you deliver value. And that's what we kept at our forefront, but I don't know if I always had it, it's, it's a learning process. It's a growth process as a person running a business for sure. So I would disagree with you a little bit and say, I didn't always know what I was doing. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I absolutely agree with, uh, with the thing that, uh, running a startup, running a business is, is absolutely difficult. And it's so, uh, it's taken to this level when it's like romanticized Mm -hmm. Just like I remember the, that was bubble of freelance, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there were like um, 
posters everywhere like go to the beach and work with your computer and uh, it's so like it's just rainbows and butterflies and after a few years everyone realized oh no it is actually hard it's still working (laughs) and now it's I think it's the same with founders like LinkedIn is just so uh, is shining bright with like become a founder, raise money, be super successful, but it's it's a very hard work. Um, okay, so you mentioned a lot of mistakes on the way, and we we have to go there a little bit at least. So <laughs> over a, sixteen you need years, a whole other podcast on just mistakes. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, let's go there a little bit. So over sixteen years, there. I, I believe there were a lot, uh, but um, how did you adapt to to changing um, technologies, to changing trends, to changing I don't know the, what customers wanted? Even right. even CRM evolved. I mean, even given that you know it's not the, the most um, trendy uh, yep. business, it still changed. So how did you do that? Yeah, I think. Number one, it comes to hiring the right people, right? And having a team around you that acts as your eyes and ears in addition to what you see going on in the competitive environment or in the customer environment. Um, I mean, technology for us evolved. Like, we started before AWS, right? Like, Amazon hadn't released that um, publicly, at least. Uh, until a few years into the business. And there wasn't Google um, Cloud. There wasn't Azure, for sure, right? AWS was kind of the first mover into that that cloud environment. Everything was still servers on racks. And I think, you know, I remember going, Nick will probably remember this too. I know he'll remember this, is we went to a warehouse. I wanted to go see these servers. I didn't, like, who are these people we were hosting with? And... We get led into this crazy building. I kid you not. We go find our server as a tower CPU, like something you'd have under your desk, right, back in the day, uh, as a home computer, sitting on a wire rack. And I was like, this is it? Like, this is it. And um, boy, have things evolved, right? Like, and I think taking you don't want to be on the what the you know the bleeding edge of technology right we were a small bootstrap company focused on the smb and we definitely didn't want to um take a ton of risk but as technology evolved and you had to make sure you were up all the time and able to um uh provide a user experience that was compelling to a sales team, right? And useful and valuable to a sales team, you would try different things, right? You would have new designers come in, uh, user experience people, technologists, but it doesn't have to all be code, right? You can evolve your process. You can involve how you do customer success, how you do customer, we call it a customer care, customer service, um, how you interact with customers. And that is a differentiating piece and a very simple, simple example that I still believe in today is picking up the phone with a human. And I had always set up pipeline. I I think they're still doing it. I should test it. Um, I think Maria is still running the customer care group there a year later. But I wanted to we could differentiate from Salesforce and frankly, from Pipedrive and these other these other folks who had hundreds of millions of dollars of VC behind them by providing better service. And so I was always fascinated with how can we put a human face on this technology company? And that was a very early lesson, which uh, Mike, Mike McDermott, I don't know if he'll remember, he started um, Fresh Books up in Canada. Wonderful guy. He met Nick and I in New York for breakfast and he's like, we showed, we were so excited and we we're showing them, you know, the first uh, wireframes of pipeline. And you guys should look at those. I think Tim and the crew would get a kick out of those. Uh, but I think with that, we showed him, I remember the breakfast meeting and he, he looks at the website and we're kind of sitting there and he looks at us like, don't you want to talk to your customers? And we're Nick and I are looking at us like, yeah, of course. But as a startup, you have 
a, a small person's complex. You're like, you want to look bigger than you are and more trustworthy than you are. You didn't want the world to know you're sort of like running out of your garage, which we were, <laughs> right? My second bedroom and Nick's kitchen table. And um, from that moment on, we've always had the 800 number picked up by a human, not a voice-aided response. And that was one way we could evolve the business, right? That is one way we could almost not change with technology. I know that's a little contrarian to your question, Anna, but that was a key differentiator for us and people loved us for it. And guess what? What did that do to the business? That increased lifetime value, that lowered churn, right? All those holy grails of SaaS, um, the holy grails of running a SaaS company. Um, I think we could come up with like the holy, the holy trinity of SaaS or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I digress. But I think there's also ways to build that sort of that learning culture, right? And sort of an anti, um, anti group think, right? Because we, you know, try, I always used to look at, try to get a 1-800 number on Amazon. It's become much easier, but for a long time, and they're a super customer centric company. Like yeah. I've looked at and them and studied them, but, um, Google, you can't call somebody. Guess who was the Gmail help desk in my neighborhood? It was, they weren't calling 1-800 Google for help with Gmail. They, in, Pennsylvania. They were coming over to my house and say, Hey, JP, can you help me set up my Gmail? I was the Google help desk. Interesting. But I guess I've been mean, coming back to, to the fact that it's a phone number, not, I don't know, an email or, uh, um, alias. I hate aliases info at. Yeah. Or like at. a bot. Yeah, because also you, you kind of want your instant response and you, I, I think people that use CRMs uh, would still prefer to pick up a phone and call. Oh, salespeople, yeah, salespeople are type A go-getters. And my experience is they love people. They love, um, they're people people, right? Like, I'd, yeah. I'd also joke that some engineers don't want to deal with people, right? They like dealing with the computer and code and logic, yeah. and they don't want to talk to the customer, right? Not all engineers, some do. Um, <laughs> and I'm obviously stereotyping here, but salespeople are people people. And so, yeah, they want to talk. And, and like, it's a different world. Early days, I can't tell you how many people we told to download Chrome. They would call us. And Nick Carey, one of the our first employee in, um, or you know, the at, at Pipeline, uh, he would come into my office laughing. He's like, "These guys don't know what a browser is." Our first company com customers did not know what a web browser was, and we would laugh. We would be like, "We're not laughing at him. We we're just laughing at the circumstance because the only way to get our phone number to call Pipeline at the time, Pipeline Deals now Pipeline Pipeline CRM." was to find our phone number through a web browser. We didn't have, there was no print media or advertising for the business. No yellow like, pages? No, but it's like, <laughs> that screen you're, that you're looking at is a web browser customer. And so those were the early days conversations. But yeah, if I had a nickel for every Chrome, uh, every Chrome download we facilitated, I think we would have got a higher valuation. Oh, I believe you. I mean, it still happens. <laughs> still happens. Uh, okay. So, um, yeah, what I wanted to ask is, uh, you, since you mentioned customer care, and I know how, how important it was. So how long was it just you and Nick doing this and doing pretty much everything apart from, uh, from tech? Because I know that uh, you had uh, another guy doing, um, doing the development. Yeah. So it's funny. It started at end with Germany, actually, this story. I've never thought of that. So our first developer um, was this wonder kid. Um, he was on the rails boards. Nick found him. His name was Rob Mannell. And young, 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 young. Not a lot of the older developers age-wise at the time were going with rail, Ruby on Rails or some of the newer, newer um, software languages. And you had to really hunt for folks who could code Ruby, right? And uh, he was this 
young savant developer in Germany and we, we found him and he started building, building the business. Right. And so he was the only one getting paid for the first two years, I think. Um, and you know, just a, a developed contractor, like you might find on Upwork or something now, but back then it was, you know, again, Upwork didn't exist. Indeed didn't exist. Um, you had to search harder, you know, people say, Oh, it's so hard to find talent these days. It's like, are you kidding me? Like you have so many resources at your disposal to find help back then it was esoteric corners of the internet where you had to find people to do what you need, especially in, in the development world. Good thing is they were all online. You just had to know where to go find them, which took a while. Uh, and with that, he, Rob was the only one making money, like I said, and then Nick and I would do everything, right? We, we did two jobs and that was part of the ethos. If you got hired at Pipeline, I, I would always meet with every new employee and do what was called Pipeline 101, right? And I'd walk you through our history and let you understand and hopefully um, appreciate and maybe learn what were our roots, right? And our roots, like I mentioned earlier, were my second bedroom, Nick's kitchen table. Uh, we started as a remote company and Nick and I were taking, we had, I had a job three days a week in New York uh, in e-commerce and I'd work two days a week on pipeline, right? And we, Nick was the first one to transition in and I was still doing uh, e-commerce online marketing stuff. And then it wasn't until year two. And I remember the day, it was a big day. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm finally getting paid by pipeline after two plus years. And I talk about this and I still believe this is a way to progress in your career. If you're not an entrepreneur, but you're, you want to progress professionally is you work two jobs, right? You take care of the job you were hired for. And then you say, yes, you say yes to more responsibility. You say yes to those projects. Nobody wants to do. You say yes to go on that trip and meet with that difficult customer. Right. And that's how we built pipeline. Cause I would do my day job from eight to five as an e-commerce, uh, really a consultant. Um, I guess it would be a fractional VP of e-commerce back in the day, mainly focused on digital marketing. And then I put the kids to bed and then I'd work from, you know, eight to midnight. And that was, that was my life for two years and it was hard and that's fine. Right. That was my choice. And that's what I wanted. And, um, that is how, you know, Nick will tell you stories on his lunch break of taking customer care calls in the hallways, uh, or at lunch when, you know, he was, he was a consultant, um, doing the same thing, right? Like it was crazy. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how we did it. We made it work. We probably made, you know, some, a lot of mistakes along the way, but you, you find how you run the business and kind of wear two hats and work two jobs until you can promote yourself. Right. And hire somebody. And then our first full-time hire was because a customer found us on Google. Yeah. That's it. Okay. So it seems like, uh, it looks like you're your third baby. Uh, so uh, there comes the question, you know, how, how do you sell your baby? And uh, how do you, and uh, this is something uh, we also talked with, with founders that, you know, sold their business after two years. And they say that there is, you know, kind of a personality crisis. You're, you're no longer the CEO of your company. You know, you're no longer the guy that runs pipeline, right? So, mm. um, how, how did you decide to go for it? And I know that at first you, you've had a few offers, right? From other companies, you ended up with SaaS group. So, uh, how did it come to your mind and how did you decide to actually look into it more seriously? Sure. It was an evolutionary process. I think, um, I think I didn't suffer. I was happy not to be CEO anymore. Like, uh, I think a time comes where, and Nick and I, before Dirk from SAS group cold called us, um, I, Nick and I were already transitioning to be more investors, right. And be more, uh, out of the day-to-day -day operations and the, 
Yuri, who's running pipeline today for SAS group, um, was our, was our guy, right? We had found Yuri. He had some great experience. He was growth oriented. He was hardworking. He was honest. Like he checked all those boxes you'd want. And our intent was to put him as a day-to-day operator. Um, we had put profit sharing in place because we knew we couldn't compete with uh, talent with Google and Amazon and Microsoft, everybody in the Seattle market and around the world. We, we, you know, we have great developers who've been with us a long time, Adrian and Dominic in Poland, Johnny, um, Bosnia, Herzegovina. I mean, there's so many people who helped us build pipeline, Frank, like I just, Chris Root, like I just go through these guys and, and women, uh, who helped us build Jackie Dasso. Um, and so, and a lot of them are still there. Um, and as that pro a, you wanted to make sure two people, two, two cohorts or groups of people were taken care of. Number one is the team because without the team, there's no company. Um, and I knew when I was in charge, I would take care of them. Right. Um, but passing that baton's a big deal. And the second group is also the customers, right? If you don't have a team to run the company and you don't have customers, what do you, you don't have anything, right? It's, it's, it's over. Um, and so as we were transitioning out, I tried to be very, I like to build people as well. I guess I should say that. So I, I was kind of on this, how do I work myself out of a job? Right. And we have, and I think I haven't checked lately. I have a, I'll chat with Yuri tomorrow and, you know, help him with anything transition stuff. I still meet with, with him monthly and, uh, as a sounding board for him, but, um, you know, how do you make sure that people are fulfilled and satisfied with the work and, and started grooming people, uh, a while ago before, before the acquisition, right. Prior to the acquisition. And I think that led us and put us in a position where I could have the brain space to respond to inbound inquiries as a CEO, because that's a whole nother job, right? And we tried using investment bankers a time or so before, and we ended up with SAS Group not having to have a whole cadre of people, right? It was Nick, me, um, Pavel on the SAS Group side primarily, and um, an attorney and an accountant. Like that was that was the team, and so. The company, if you're going to sell it, has has to be at a position where you can step away, right, from the helm and somebody else can take it. Are, are your processes in place? Are your financials solid? Is your product market fit solid? Um, is your technology solid? Uh, and making sure each of those pieces, your customer service, your customer success, is, is that all in place. And if you can look yourself in the mirror as a CEO and says, yeah, uh, and not, not every place is perfect. We weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but if you have your company at some level of maturity, you can entertain these inquiries. Right. And for us, it came back to who was a good cultural fit and SAS group was a good cultural fit. And I think that's born itself true. That assumption has born itself true over the last 12 months since we, um, did the transaction. And I don't know if you're ever ready, um, but I was ready. I think Nick was ready. Um, and it, it just worked out so far, knock on wood, right? It's worked out good for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Was there anything that really surprised you during the acquisition? Something that you didn't expect in a good or yeah. in a bad way? Let's spill all the beans. A lot of entrepreneurs are, haven't been through um, the M&A process and they've called me up and say, hey, what was it like? What, what should I plan for? What can I do to increase my chances of success? And I think for me, it was one of these things where uh, the roller coaster ride that is... Uh, an M&A process and that evolution of what it's like to actually sell the asset. Right. Um, I, Nick and I, Nick would probably 
agree is there were days we would wake up and we're like, it's done. Deal's over. You know, you know, that this, you know, uh, we forgot about this part in our financials or what happened in 2018 or whatever. Right. And you're just like, it's done. They're going to walk. Right. It's over. We've, there's no way this is going to happen. And you would kind of prevent yourself from thinking it's going to work. And that happened, I don't know, three or four times during the process. And look, the process with SAS group was, you know, relatively dreamlike, like not very shrewd buyers, very smart, intelligent folks. They know what they're doing. I'm kind of talking in the third person because I know you work there, but this was this was before, and I know you're not on before the MA team, um, but like um, when when you you just want to make sure you know everything's in the best light, but it's not always the case, and I think just being transparent and honest gets you so much further. Um, pointing out your mistakes, don't let them be discovered, right? When you do disclose everything. Um, I I made a very concerted effort with Nick is like, okay, what are the gotchas? What are the things that if we discovered, if we were buying a company would be walk away um, criteria? We didn't want that to happen during our process. So I did everything we could to get everything out on the table and especially the bad stuff first because then the good stuff comes and i think that helps the acquire sort of modulate the bad stuff um and that yeah you, you think this deal is going to end and so those those were sort of the low points through the process um and i just ended up compartmentalizing is i just would not think of anything post-process except of like what's happening with the profit sharing um, with the team um, or the equity, the equity program we had, you know, uh, sort certain deal terms that I wanted to make sure were in place. And I had frankly promised my team would happen. I wanted to make sure it happened. And we had an acquirer who was willing to facilitate that and willing to let me honor my commitments to the team through the transaction. And so everybody got a payday um, at the end. And I think, um, you know, I think that's a good thing, right? I think you should benefit from some of the risk you take at going with a smaller company versus, I mean, all of our team could have been employed anywhere, right? Google, Facebook, Microsoft, but they chose us. They chose me, they chose Nick, they chose our customers. And so I wanted to make sure they were rewarded. That's cool. That, that's really amazing. I, I love uh, how you approach that. Uh, and uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you, you probably want uh, like something that, that you have in your mind to happen instantaneously. So how was it with an acquisition? It, it, I know it can take longer than expected. So how did you cope uh, with the fact that it is a meticulous preparation and you have to uh, show up for every call, every meeting, and then yeah. just, just make it happen, uh, over some time, not just overnight. Yeah. Um, I kind of equate it to my father-in-law. My father-in-law, um, was an ultra marathoner. He's no longer running still around, thankfully, but he's no longer running 100 mile races, but I paced him on a few. I could maybe help them for seven miles of the 100 of the western states or something which is a big race in california out here on the west coast of the united states um and people would be always like and you got to run these 100 mile races in 30 hours and if you don't make the cutoffs whether it's time or you lose too much weight or your blood pressure is off they cut your bracelet right and you're out of the race and I looked at selling pipeline as an ultra marathon. Uh, I can never run a hundred mile race. I don't think I have one in me. Probably not. Um, Nick might ask him if he's ever going to run an ultra, but um, the uh, probably not uh, the he, people would ask, how would you do this? How would you run a hundred miles in less than 30 hours? And he said, he had, i just overheard this conversation once of him talking, answering that question. And it was, I just get to the next turn or the next telephone pole. And I don't think about the hundred miles. I don't even think of this mile. 
I think of that telephone pole. And when I get to that telephone pole, I go to the next telephone pole. And I think the sales process is a lot like that. And if you can set up intermediate checkpoints, milestones, even just getting through the day of turning, you know, getting, you know, of the hundred things the acquirer wants from you, you know, just getting 10 out today or one out today is a, is progress, right? And it's getting you towards the goal of crossing the finish line of the under 30 hours of a hundred miles. And so that's how I really thought about it. Uh, relied on my wife a lot. She was very helpful. Uh, we went for a lot of walks. Like I would be able, I, I do well, we would walk every morning. Um, and that would allow me just to process things out loud, uh, in a, uh, healthy environment. Right. Cause it's all, we're all work from home. Right. We sold sort of on the tail end of pandemic. The Ukraine war was just starting. It was not the optimal time to sell a company at all. Like I've always, like, looking back, like started the company when I shouldn't with all you know, two kids at home under three, no job, like, you know, sold the company when we probably shouldn't. <laughs> so I don't know. I got to think on that more, but um, yeah, I, I, that's how I think about the process, Anna, is breaking it into small chunks and just running from telephone pole to telephone pole. I'm glad this conversation gets you to reminisce a little bit and analyze what happened. It may be a, a little bit of a new way, but yeah. uh, I know there is a new venture. Uh, yeah. You, yeah, <laughs> you decided not to uh, wait this out for too long and uh, started a new company. So what is it? Sure. So the company's called Pyrezo. It's in the wildfire technology space. So we're helping homeowners make their properties more resilient to wildfire. And so this has three core components to it, save lives, protect property and improve the environment. Um, it's a big problem. You know, how do you help structures survive a wildfire? How do you give people agency over securing their biggest asset or at least increasing the chances of survival? Um, and I'm really enabling the idea of a fire chief who has been in the fire service for, for a long time. And he conceived of this idea that has manifested itself over the last 11, 12 months. And it's now Pyrezo. And we're on, we've are working in the U S West. We work with homeowners and property owners, wineries in California and Oregon to help them understand what the risk profile is of a given property and what they can do to mitigate it. And so this is a real fun project for me because it's something that uh, I can help the earth, right? Because you, you think of air quality, you think of carbon capture. Um, we have a problem out here on the West Coast with our our, our fuels per acre is just so dense and, and really dangerous as the last few years have played out. And so I'm able to apply what I learned technology wise at Pipeline and do it in a way when we launch our, our mobile app. So everyone will have a wildfire risk assessment tool in their pocket. And we're partnering with insurance companies and fire jurisdictions to bring this product to market. So, um, Still technology, but a different spin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I remember you said that uh, you in, in the beginning of this conversation, you said that the next one is going to be a bit more for for the good of the earth. So mm -hmm. I guess that that's it. All right. Well, uh, all the best uh, with Thanks, it. Anna. I would love to maybe next year interview you about Pariso and uh, see where it stands. And that um, <laughs> yeah, I just have uh, one bonus question uh, for you. So uh, what do you think is the trend now in SaaS that is uh, occupying the industry a little bit and that has a potential to become something big? Well, our space is machine learning and AI, and I've learned a lot about that over the past year and working with some really smart people in applying machine learning specifically with computer vision. Um, I think this thing is still changing the game. Um, and we're not even using this to its capacity And what we're doing at Pyrezo with computer vision and machine learning, um, 
at scale, right? Which is sort of early days, uh, one one segment of the AI landscape. Um, and then I have other friends leveraging the LiDAR component on here, which people don't even know is on there on the newer iPhones. And so I, I'm really fascinated by, and I don't know if it's a trend, um, you know, in and of itself, I think it is, but just the marriage of AI, specifically machine learning and computer vision, I think is photogrammetry. Like that's a super interesting and compelling space. And seeing that merge with the, uh, the mobile, so AI, ML and mobile, um, and it's it's in AR, VR, like that whole, I'm, I think I'm more compelled as a first step in AR, uh, augmented reality, um, and there's some really exciting projects and development being done in that world. And so that's where I'm spending my time. Okay. I think it's a good, it's a good place to be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, it, it's been amazing listening to your story. I think uh, we definitely need another episode at least to, to get a bit more of uh, what you've done over the past 16 years. I still cannot um, grasp what what you have gone through with the company and mm. how it evolved from 2006. Um, so, but yeah, I, I would love to, to learn more and it. it's probably a good thing that I'm talking to Nick tomorrow uh, yeah. to get his side of things. Yeah, and you got it like, I think, most business partnerships that I've seen don't end well. And Nick's a special partner, a uh, business partner. And I think our ability to work together over multiple companies, over multiple decades, right? I think we've been working together probably close to 20 years now. Um, I think we fell just short about, you know, by 19 years total working together. And, uh, we didn't blow up, right? Like, I'm sure you can have a ton of founder stories where they got mad or they fought over money or equity and Nick's a special guy and his, his ability to put up with me and um, build a great business and a great business person on his own merits. Um, I'm excited you get to talk to him tomorrow and, and, uh, and learn from him because it, I'm excited it ended well um, between the two of us as, as well. Like that's that's just like icing on the cake that we still talk probably weekly and get to hear about his new dog Bruno and all that fun stuff. So yeah, that's it. It does sound great. It's it's kind of a unique story. So again, yeah. thanks for sharing it. Sure, it's Anna, been have fun. a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you for coming. Ah, thank you for inviting me. Thanks. All right. And take care. You too. Adios. Bye.